Well, again, I'll add to Brian's uh, words earlier, Happy Mother's Day. And on behalf of this church, it is my honor to express on behalf of all of us that we are both thankful for and deeply indebted to the many, many, many godly mothers in this church. You set a beautiful example of Christ's heart for us, for those in your home, and we give God glory for you. You are so substantial to the good work God is doing in and through this church, certainly in your homes. We're also aware of the heaviness that this holiday brings for those who've lost their mothers or in unexpected circumstances been bereaved of their children. Many in this church have walked through that valley of the shadow of death. And we have prayed, we are praying that the Lord Jesus will mercifully meet you with his gracious and tender touch. We love you. We are praying with you. We support you. And although it doesn't take long being around here to figure out, uh, we're not super bright and uh, we're not the sharpest pencils in the box. We certainly didn't have a lot of foresight to plan a lot of things that God just graciously keeps lining up in front of us. Today's another example of that. We did not have the foresight to plan it this way, but today's sermon passage is especially relevant on Mother's Day. We didn't intentionally line it up like that, but God in His kindness saw fit to give it to us. The text deals primarily with women, specifically women who have experienced some of the deepest sorrows on this side of eternity the death of their spouse. And today's text shows us how we and others, we a church and others, are to be engaged in care for grieving sisters. And how they too are to continue to honor the Lord even as they follow Christ following the loss of their husband. Today's passage is about widows. And it's about the church's responsibility to care for them well and to counsel them faithfully. Sometimes the best care is hard counsel. And on this Mother's Day afternoon, I invite you to join me in 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we continue our series, Faithful to the Gospel, from the book of 1 Timothy. And we'll take a focused look at our God-given responsibility to care for people who are deeply, deeply loved by God namely Christian widows. 1 Timothy chapter 5, let your eyes fall on verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge. 13. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. 16. If any woman who is a believer 
has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. This is God's word. Let's ask him for help as we dive into it. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this passage. Pray for help to understand it, to obey it. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that one of the very last things you did before you breathed your last breath on the cross was to ensure that a widow, your earthly mother, would be well taken care of. Lord, we want to know your heart for the vulnerable among us. And we want to know what you think about this local church being used by you as an extension of your love and care to vulnerable believers in our midst. Help us to have eyes to see like you see and hearts to love like you love and hands and feet to serve like you want us to serve. Use our whole life and all of our resources to extend your care to people that you love. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, in this section of 1 Timothy, Paul's concerned with how the gospel shapes the whole church by creating a culture of grace and generosity. Our series title is called Faithful to the Gospel. What would that look like? Part of it is explicitly spelled out in this passage. I believe we could best understand this passage if we ask ourselves the golden rule, the Matthew 7 Jesus sentence. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. How would you want somebody to treat you if you were vulnerable? If you could be easily taken advantage of? If you were in need of provision, basic life needs, or protection? What would you want somebody who had the ability to do for you? That's what we all should do for our sisters in the Lord who are in any situation like that. This passage specifically about widows, but I believe the principle of the passage is that local churches honor, that's the word God uses three times, honor those among us who need the protection and provision of the Lord through His people. We should have eyes to see it and hearts that care about it. You can see in verse 3 and verse 17, that word honor is used. The NIV says recognition. The Christian Standard Bible says support. That's what the gospel does to a church. It's what it does to the people who comprise the church. Let me say it clearly. I want you to listen carefully. The real Jesus of the real gospel really in your life creates a healthy culture of Christian honor in our relationships with one another. That sounds like preachy talk, so what does that mean? That culture of gospel honor shows up in practical support for vulnerable people. So last week we saw in verses 1 and 2 that the gospel produces a culture of honor in the way we engage with each other. Older men treated as fathers, younger men treated as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. That means that the gospel does not just relate us to God, very, very, very personal, but not privately. We are now a family. The gospel relates us to the Lord and to one another. The women among us are either to be treated as mothers or sisters. The men among us either as fathers or as brothers. Church membership, therefore, is not optional for a Christian. We need one another. Because the Holy Spirit dispenses gifts and resources, I mean material in your pocketbook resources, to different members in every local church because God intends for us to care for one another in ways that we could not enjoy if we were alone, both receiving and extending that care. So verse 1 and 2 teach us that we're to honor one another as a Christian family. This week, verse 3 to 16, 
honor vulnerable people, widows in particular. Next week, verses 17 to 20, honor pastors. Honor, 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 honor. That's what the gospel does to a church. So I'm going to ask you right now, how's your relationship with your prayer directory? If you're a member of this church, you've got a little directory, you can look at it online or in a paper copy. How's your relationship with that? I think it's the second most important document you own behind this. Praying for those people will make you in tune with the Lord's heart to want to care for them. And then together, we seek to serve and support each other. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is about, is about how the gospel produces a healthy culture of honor and support in the body of Christ. There are two parts to the passage. I got way more material than I'm going to give you, but I want you not to miss this. The two parts of the passage are God's care and God's counsel. God's care for true widows, or New American Standard, God's care for widows indeed, God's care, and God's counsel, God's instruction to younger widows. The overarching theme of the passage, feel this, don't just hear this. God is concerned about the grief of his daughters. He knows the sorrow through which they have walked. When one of God's daughters has either lost by death or been left by, that's the phrase in the passage, been left by their husband, he cares for them. In this passage, we see that God not only cares for them, but He doesn't do it in an ethereal, I'll see you when, they, when you get to heaven kind of way. He does it by unleashing all, capital A-L-L, all of His people power and all of our material resources in the church to come to the lifelong aid of, quote, widows indeed, or ESV, truly widows, verse 3, verse 5, verse 16. Once again, how's your relationship with your prayer directory? Young men, listen to me. Study hard in school. Make good grades. Or, figure out how you can use the body God gave you to work hard in some vocation that doesn't require that academia. That's great too, but don't do it for you. God intends for you to provide for your future household, but he also intends for you to have resources that you will not use, that you give to the church, or that you give in support of others who are yet to be known to you, perhaps already in this room. Young ladies, this passage has something beautiful to say to you. If you are a granddaughter, that's true of every female in the room. Maybe your grands have already gone on from this life. But if you're a granddaughter, you have a role to play in the kingdom of Christ in extending His love to hurting people. God calls it honor. That has to do with material, monetary provision. That's what God means by honor. It doesn't mean say nice things to them. You should do that too. But it means material, monetary provision. That's the way honor is no doubt about it used in the rest of the passage. There are two ways that Paul speaks about God's care for widows. And I'm going to expand to all vulnerable people. We could talk about babies in the womb. We could talk about orphans. We could talk about divorcees on biblical grounds. We could talk about people who are vulnerable in any way, shape, or form. This principle applies. Before we get ahead of ourselves, the two ways this passage tells us that God gives care to widows is through their biological family and through their Christian family. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we have to define what a widow is because this passage has two kinds. True widows, widows indeed, 
and unworthy widows. The first thing I want to say before we define that is that the church in Ephesus must have had a lot of men who have died. Apparently in this church that Timothy's pastoring, there's some young ladies whose husbands have died. There's some older ladies whose husbands have died. The first thing we should say before we get into definitions and trying to get everything just right orderly, this passage wouldn't be in the Bible if God did not see your pain and have a plan in it all, through it all. I'm not sure what you envision in your mind's eye when you envision the congregation in Ephesus where Timothy was a pastor when he read this letter for the first time. But if you don't see a number of younger and older women whose husbands have passed away and the tears that they have shed as a result of that, then you're not imagining that congregation accurately. Before we talk about caring for them, let's make sure we understand what a true widow is and what an unworthy widow is. Now, the passage doesn't have it all sequentially. God's care, God's counsel, true widow, unworthy widow. It's interspersed, but I've just grouped it together. What is a true widow? What is a widow indeed? Verse 3 commands you to care for them. The answer is in the descriptions of this sister in the Lord in verse 5, 9, and 10. And this is a true widow. Here's your word for the day ecclesiologically speaking, church speaking. Every widow, every wife whose husband has died is a widow. We're talking about a church-supported widow. The question is not, has their husband died or deserted them, left them alone? That would qualify them as a widow, biblically speaking. The question in the passage is, which of those sisters whose husbands have died or deserted them, should the church take responsibility to care for? This must be a really big deal to God. Partly based on the math alone, 12.5% of the book of 1 Timothy is devoted to caring for these people. What is a true widow? According to verse 5, it's one who has A, B, C, been left alone, fixed her hope on God, and continues in prayer night and day. Left alone is, I believe, obviously, somebody's husband's no longer there by virtue of death, but I also believe, including sisters whose husbands from whom they have been divorced on biblical grounds. The word for left alone could be translated forsaken in verse 5. A widow indeed is one who has been forsaken. Their husband did not uphold the covenant of marriage. Through adultery, abandonment, abuse, they undid their covenant vow. Paul could have said, now she is a widow indeed, period. But he said a widow who's been left alone. He could have said a widow whose husband had died. But instead he said a widow who has been left alone, therefore by no fault of her own, either via the death or the divorce of her husband, he's no longer in the picture. So the principle of the passage is now she's vulnerable. The church should see her weakness. God sees it. God refers to it multiple times in this text, all throughout the Old and New Testament. He draws attention to his eye being on the widow. And the church should see as well. We should be drawn toward her to help her. I'm going to ask you again, young men, boys, teenage young men, are vulnerable older sisters in Christ on your radar? Do you see them? One of the most stinging rebukes that was a hug at the same time came from a former member of our church who was a retired sister in the Lord, that gives you a range of her age, who said, I feel invisible here. I walk through the hallways, nobody talks to me. Like, oh, Lord, help us to grow in that. 
Do you see people who are not in your demographic? Let me put it to you positively. God put you in this church with all of your youth and all of your strength because he wants you, you, to serve them now. Verse 5 says she has also fixed her hope on God. And she continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. This is a widow indeed. That's a nearly identical description to a sister in the book of Luke chapter 2 named Anna who was a prophetess. And we're told in Luke chapter 2 verse 36 that Anna, Anna the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, advanced in years, had lived with her husband for seven years after they were married. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Almost the same phrase right here. A true widow is worthy of the church's support. And so is any sister uh, in our midst who is bereaved of her husband and is so hoping in the Lord. So that's verse 5. Another description of this true widow, it's important that we get this right, is verses 9 and 10. She is to be put on the list, we'll come back to that, if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, shown hospitality to strangers, washed the saints' feet, assisted those in distress, and has devoted herself to every good work. So if she's over 60, very, very poor biblical interpretation would have to be employed to conclude that God means for the church to refuse to minister in every way we possibly can to a wife younger than 60 whose husband has died. That's not what Paul is saying we absolutely should come alongside any hurting, suffering, grieving person in our church family and Grace Church. Better than any church I've ever been part of, you beautifully excel in this. You are so good at this. You enter into people's pain and sorrow. You weep with the weeping and you wash their feet in the process. But Paul knows. There are some difficult to spot dangers in the church taking on the task of long-term ownership of basic life care needs for a younger widow. She's definitely as widowed as an older widow, but she's not to be, quote, on the list. She's not to be registered, another verse says, by the church in the same category of long-term care as an older, above 60-year-old widow. Age should factor into the church's approach to long-term care of material assistance, and there's a reason. But before we get ahead on that, a true widow, verse 9, is a one-woman man, having been the wife of one man. That means she's monogamous. She was faithful to the man to whom she was married. Verse 10, she, if she has children, she's a godly mother. Verse 10 doesn't mean that she must have had children, but if she has had them, she was in every sense godly in mothering them. Paul clearly understands there'll be situations where a godly widow has children and is also being cared for by the church, not her children, or maybe in addition to her children. He's gonna talk about children taking care of these widows in just a moment, but verse 10 indicates that in addition to their care, the church should also supplement that care. Verse 10, she's been hospitable, She's humble and servant-hearted. She washes people's feet, either physically or proverbially. She's generous. She assists those in distress. She's reliable. She devoted herself to every good work. So that's the profile of a true widow or a widow indeed that should be on the church's radar to be put on an official list of care and support. So with those guiding principles in view, the church is to be eager to extend Christ's care and Christ's compassion to any sisters in the congregation whose husband has, verse 5, left her alone. Now, purposefully titled this point in the sermon, God's Care for Widows, because there's something so beautiful about the heart of God that I had not given near enough attention to until this sermon passage forced me to do it. 
I already mentioned our passage represents 12% of the book of 1 Timothy, which alone shows it's an issue tremendously important to God and should be important to his churches. But the more I dug into this church, the more the whole Bible began to open up to me and to show me that God's heart is pulsing with agape love and tender care for his daughters whose husband can no longer or will no longer take care of them. In Psalm 146.9, the Lord protects the widows. In Isaiah 117, he refuses the worship of any person who does not plead for widows. In Jeremiah 22, verse 3, he says, do not mistreat or do violence to the widows. Old Testament Israel was repeatedly told about God's command to care for the widows among them as an extension of his care for them. In Exodus 22, he said, you shall not afflict any widow. In Deuteronomy 10, God executes justice for the widow and shows his love for them. In Psalm 80, uh, pardon me, 68 verse 5, he is a father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows in his holy habitation. This isn't just what God does, this is who he is. This is what his heart is like. If you don't see vulnerable people, you are very little like the God you profess to follow. His eye is on them. He sees them. His heart pulses for them. He has agape love for them. He's constantly caring for them. He never forgets them. His heart searches the whole earth over for vulnerable people whose heart is completely devoted to him. And then he unleashes his benevolent care upon them through his people. That is the church. Do you know this God? If we don't serve them, mark it down. We lose, not God. He'll raise up somebody else who will get the blessing of being an extension of his care. Deuteronomy 27, 19, cursed is he who distorts the justice due the alien, orphan, and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. The New Testament church is told in no uncertain terms that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, James 1.27, is to draw near, to look upon widows in their distress. I'm all for the Amber Adoption Fund. I love it. We turned her name into an acronym. It's some of the best theology we've ever done as a church. Adoption magnifies the beauty of eternal redemption. I'm all for the Amber Adoption Fund. I hope you'll go tell every Christian friend you know who's considering adoption that you're going to pray with them, that God will lead them down that pathway, and this church wants to support them. I believe in it. It's so close to the heart of God to care for vulnerable children in the womb and vulnerable children who are orphans. But maybe we should start the VCF or the WCF the Vulnerable Care Fund, the Widow Care Fund, which is equally as close to the center of God's heart. So with that in mind, those are true widows. That's how God thinks about them. What are unworthy widows? It's not that their spouse hadn't died, but it's that the church should not allocate its resources to their long-term support. God wants his church to understand that not every widow ought to be on a local church's long-term care list. Look at verse 6. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. She ought not be eligible for the church's support. This is a picture of a lady whose husband has died, and she's taken advantage of her newfound singleness to, as one Bible dictionary put it, indulge herself excessively in satisfying her own appetites or desires to live indulgently upon the world. Paul describes such a woman in this verse as doubly dead. Dead even while she lives. This is a lady whose sorrow over her husband's death has proved her to be a false convert, as suffering often does to many professing Christians. When her mettle got tested in the fires of her husband's funeral, the gold of her character that came out on the other side of the fire and those flames of suffering and sorrow proved that she's carnal, worldly, and pagan. It was fool's gold. 
Another Bible dictionary I consulted indicated that the word Paul used here for wanton pleasure, New American Standard, self-indulgence, ESV verse 6, carries the idea of sensual living. Can you see this woman? Her husband recently died, and she's now flaunting her newfound singleness to attract men in a way that she should not. Such widows are to be exempt from the church's material support. They are unworthy of the resources of the Lord's church. To drive home the distinction between these two types of widows, Paul commands, verse 7, Timothy to prescribe, present active imperative. Keep on commanding these things so that they may be above reproach. You see, that's what good Bible teaching does to our life. If a pastor just stands up and says, there's two types of widows... God approves some and he doesn't approve others, then the Word of God has a shaping effect on our souls. This would happen to all of us with different passages of Scripture. Meaning, unashamedly, verse 7, let the sisters in your church know what type of widows the congregation of Christ will and will not put on her care list. And by doing so, God will use the instruction of His Word through the preaching of His Word to draw widows to right living. That is, verse 7, to be above reproach. God's Word changes you. Now that we have the distinction, true widow, false widow, or unworthy widow, how does he care for them? There's two ways, and then we'll get counsel to the younger widows. How does God care for them? Through their biological family and through their Christian family. First, their biological family. Verse 3 is a direct application of the fifth command. Today, we did catechism number 2, on the Ten Commandments. The fifth of the Ten Commandments is what Paul's talking about in verse 3. He's talking about Exodus 20, verse 12. He's talking about Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. Honor your father and mother. That's the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Before a church takes up the full responsibility to care for these sisters in the Lord whose husbands have died, verse 4 lays the responsibility at the doorstep of her children and her grandchildren. Are you a grandson? Are your grandparents still alive? Are you an adult child? Are your parents still alive? Paul is applying the fifth commandment to you when you're older, not only when you're younger. Little kids, if you are a small child, listen to Pastor Jordan. God wants you to honor, to obey your mom and your dad. If you don't obey them, you are not fighting your parent, you are fighting God. The same is true when you're an older kid. So, verse 4 tells you what to do. One of the most godly things that a young person can do on this side of eternity. And one of the most godly things that any adult child can do on this side of eternity is to take as good care of your aging parents as possible. Honor your father and mother. This definitely applies to young children. Mom tells you to go to bed. Mom tells you to clean your room. Mom tells you to stop talking back to her. You should obey. But it also applies to you as long as your parents live. In Mark 7, the Lord Jesus gave a scathing rebuke to all who forsake his commands to take care of their parents. They say, oh, we would have given it to our parents, but we already gave it to God. Jesus said, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition." Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would have been helpful to you is been devoted to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Jesus concluded, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. I ask again, are you a grandson or a granddaughter. God wants you to accumulate resources now and use your time, energy, strength, effort now to take care of them, to serve them. 
God has clearly commanded parents to provide for their children. 2 Corinthians 12, children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. But make no mistake. Today's text, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4, memorize it. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, before I leave this, I just feel like it's one of the most important things I have to say, Lord, help me. There's a motive and there's a warning. There's a reason you should take care of your grandparents and your parents. Verse 4, it's acceptable in the sight of God. That's the motive. That means God will smile over your life. He likes it. He accepts it. He's pleased by it. This motivation infers that children and grandchildren of this widow are also Christians because they love what God loves and they love to bring pleasure to the heart of God. If the approval of God does not attract you to obey His commands, then I recommend to you, listen carefully, getting saved. You are lost if you don't like what pleases God. The heart that belongs to Christ by faith loves to honor Christ in action. And God tells us very clearly in verse 4, He is honored, He is pleased, He accepts when we honor those who have devoted their whole life to taking care of us. Who held you when you were an infant? Who fed you? Who bathed you? Who clothed you? Who cleaned you? How did you get where you're at? Verse 4 says that you have the precious privilege to make some return. Not all. You can't pay them back. It's just a gesture of honor. There's also a warning. What if you don't do it? Verse 8, you're worse than people who never said they're Christians. Verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own, that means not only biological family, that's your neighbor, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a warning. Do you know that no matter what you say, you can prove that you are not a genuine Christian by your failure to serve your family? I am not saying, I hope you're still listening. I am not saying that serving your family makes you a Christian. I am saying that God has said failure to provide for your own, that's all your neighbors. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? All of them. Especially those in your household makes you worse than an unbeliever. That's what God said. So question, how is it worse? Answer, because it lies about the heart of God. To say that you are in God's family and not care for the family that He gave you is to cast a shadow on the beauty of Christ who put you in His family. That's worse than saying you were never a Christian at all. That reminds me of Jesus' evaluation of His family. In Luke 8, his mother and brothers came to him, Luke 8, 19, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. He answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's his family. So we learn from verse 4 and verse 8 that God's primary means of care for Christian widows is through their biological family children, grandchildren, but it's not restricted to them. Sometimes they may not have many resources either. They may not have many means either. So it's not only them. Lost people do that. Their Christian church is also to be part of God's wonderful arsenal to support widows and vulnerable people. In addition to the beautiful makeup of a godly family, kids and grandkids who are seeking to honor Christ by caring for their parents, Christian widows are also to be supported as needed by the local church. And I just want to say, if you know, like many of us, that we have failed to honor our mother and father as we should have, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to forgive you for every failing. 
He died to empower you to begin to obey Him afresh. You know, because Jesus honored His father and His mother perfectly, He can give you His righteousness. If you'll just turn to Him by faith, He'll credit all of His obedience to your account. And if you'll turn to Him, be it known that He will also infuse you with a desire to follow His example. That's where the church comes in. God cares for widows. God's care for widows also comes via God's family. Take a look at verse 9 and 11. Verse 9, putting a widow on the list. ESV says enrolled. Verse 11, put on the list or enrolled. Sorry, I think I got one of those wrong. This means that a congregation with godly, vulnerable people are eligible for the church's ongoing care in a myriad of ways. We should have a list, we should have names, we should know who they are, we should all seek to serve them, support them, help them however we can. Paul means for churches to enroll these believers in the church's proactive planning for ministry assistance. So I was trying to get an idea of what this very Christ-like ministry might look like in a local church. To be honest, I was stumped. I'm sure it doesn't appear like it, but I worked harder on this sermon than many I can remember in a long time. This passage stumped me. I I begged our staff on Tuesday as we did a devotion in this passage, just pray for me. I talked to so many people, help me. What does this look like? I've grown up going to church my whole life. I've literally been in churches my whole life. And although many of those churches may have had, they probably did have a widow's list or a vulnerable care list, and they probably did all kinds of things to exercise many wonderful ministries of Christ's mercy and love, I was oblivious to it. So I sent an email this week to about 250 pastors all around the country and around the world soliciting any insights for how they understand and apply this passage in their churches. And I received back a wealth of practical wisdom That's why I said I have more than I can share with you. I'll share just some of the ways that sister churches put this 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3 to 16 into practice in hopes of stimulating your prayers. Not copy-paste, maybe that. But do you think like this? Do you love like this? Do you care like this? That's what I'm trying to provoke. Lord, help us to be a church like this. Maybe this will generate good ideas of practical ministry in this flock of the Lord Jesus. A church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We have 250 members. We visit our widows regularly. We send them a bouquet of roses and a note on Valentine's Day and significant anniversaries. We are mindful of them on the date of the loss of their loved one. Our main ministry is visitation, which reveals through it any pressing needs, and they love it. Another church, Eden Prairie, Minnesota, Dan Miller, pastor. Yes, brother, we have a widow's list. Each widow on the list is a member in good standing in our congregation. We pray for them in our church service on Sunday morning, on the Sunday prior to the anniversary of the date of their spouse's death so that they know we love them and are thinking about them. We pay for a major appliance insurance plan for all of them. We provide triple A for those with cars. We assign each widow a deacon and a deacon checks on them who is assigned to them periodically. When a project meets a deacon's criteria of support, either the deacon will complete a repair project, such as fix a leaky toilet or a malfunctioning lock, or we hire it out if the project is deemed worthy. We strive to support in a, we we strive to provide support in a way while avoiding unnecessary dependence. The goal is for the deacons to include other church members in the work and in the care. What a beautiful church. Who would wanna join that? Another church, Lapeer, Michigan. A widow lives with me and my family. I would call that pretty close to the center of the bullseye. Really, really good care. We offer a class for widows taught by a widow. We have over a dozen sisters in that class. Another church, Lynchburg, Virginia. We maintain a list of widows and have a team of women who regularly contact them with cards, visits, and phone calls. Another church, Austin, Texas. Yes, we have a list because we have an abnormal amount of widows and shut-ins. We have a deacon who oversees this ministry. The deacon has recruited members to be part of a team that regularly checks in on each widow and every shut-in to see if they have any needs or prayer requests. It has been such a blessing to us and we hope to them. That's the kind of stuff Paul's thinking about in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
Now, I don't know if this church will ever have enough money to build a building, worship space, uptown on the property that the church owns. If we continue to rent and borrow places to meet so long as this church exists, so be it. If it means that we allocate the needed resources in our church family to care for those among us who are vulnerable. That is more important than brick and mortar. That's why God puts 12% of 1 Timothy in the book. But oftentimes God raises up another group of people in the church who have a special sense of calling to give their life to this ministry. This is so beautiful. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. You see, these widows are eligible. They're already widows indeed. This is almost certainly referring to some women in the church who have a sense of God's calling to devote their lives to caring for a specific widow or cluster of widows as their primary ministry on this side of heaven. I have never heard of anybody in my lifetime saying they feel called to this ministry and I therefore want to hold it high and say, hey, young ladies, listen to me. Pray about God calling you to this. To give your life, maybe in addition to marriage, family, vocation, maybe as your ministry. Amy Carmichael packed up and went to India. You might unpack, stay here, and serve some aging sisters in the church. Maybe they live with them. Maybe they visit them regularly. Maybe it's something like Christian home health volunteer work. Can you envision verse 16? This is beauty. This is a sister in the Lord who's being described as able-bodied Christian lady who has given out of love for other sisters in the Lord a commitment of her life to care for them as long as she is on this side of eternity. What a ministry! What an awesome, awesome thing to give your life to. Pray about giving your life to a ministry like that. Pray about being called to something like that. One of the pastors who responded to my email had written a doctoral dissertation on the topic of biblical widow care. And when I say pray about giving your life to this, this stunned me. Midway through his project, he pulled out this statistic. In 1940, 18% of elderly widows lived alone. 1940. In 1990, 62% of them lived alone. Quote, and that number will only continue to increase. Who's going to take care of them? You know what God would say if he were standing right here right now? You are. Young ladies, this is what I'm saying. There will be more older widows. This church doesn't have an abundance of them yet. There will be those who have been left by their husbands. Maybe God is going to call you to give your life to extend Christ's care to them. So the last part, I know what time it is, is younger widows. Do you know what the church should do for them? Not put them on a long-term care list. Counsel them. We all need God to talk to us when our pain and suffering could drive us instead of God and His Word driving us. Nothing's more deeply sorrowful just about on this side of eternity than the loss of a spouse or a child, especially a young married couple in the prime of their life with so much in front of them, all these hopes and dreams of what they're going to do and be and where they're going to go and live and how they're going to serve the Lord for the rest of their days together, to be rocked by death early in their marriage. God knows that pain. He's not oblivious to that sorrow. And this passage wants us to know God does see that pain. And like Anna, the older widow in Luke 2, this reminds me of Ruth in the Old Testament who lost her husband. And instead of letting the pain drive her from the Lord, 
She rested in the God of all comfort. And shortly after, the man of her dreams was the one to whom she was married and then he was taken prematurely, it seemed, from her vantage point. She remarried another man and you know the story. His name was Boaz and together they had a great-grandson named King David. And that man, as you know, was in the lineage of the King of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in her sorrow, Ruth couldn't see that God had a good plan. But when she got to heaven, it made perfect sense. So what's God's counsel to younger widows? The passage is clear. Marry and have a family. It's kind of morbid to think about. But if the Lord takes me to glory, do two things. Celebrate. (laughs) And rally around my family. But it's absolutely normal and ordinary and biblical and faithful to encourage younger widows to remarry. It's general counsel. It's not a requirement. I can make that argument very easily. The man who wrote the sentence wasn't married. The Apostle Paul was single. The Lord Jesus was not married. It's not a requirement, but it is God's general counsel. There's also a motive and a warning. Look at the motive in verse 14. At the end of the verse, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Paul's illuminating the truth that a young widow does not have to be forever imprisoned by the pain of losing her husband at a young age. But he's saying you should consider remarriage because you don't want to give the enemy any room for reproach. She is to... Be so engaged in good and God-honoring activities, verse 14 describes, that she doesn't have time for sinful stupidity. That's the motive. She anticipates remarriage because, among other things, she doesn't want to give the enemy any room to come in, creep in. How might he do that? There are three ways she's warned. Verse 11, 12, and 13. There's a personal warning, verse 11. Don't put them on the list because in their sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, verse 12, thus incurring judgment, condemnation, because they set aside their previous pledge. You see, Paul's not saying that remarriage is wrong after death. Verse 14 makes that clear. I think Paul's referring to chapter 4, verse 3, where there were some false teachers forbidding marriage in the previous chapter. And some younger widows in the church of Ephesus may have been tempted to make a lifelong vow, that's what it sounds like, their previous pledge, verse 12, to never marry again on the basis of that false teaching. And Paul wants them to know that taking such a pledge is not required by God, and the church failed them by putting them on the lifelong care list. Two faults. And the condemnation in verse 12 and the disregard of Christ in verse 11 is not God's condemnation, It's being condemned in the court of public opinion. Oh, I thought that she was one of those people we put on the registry because she pledged her lifelong singleness. She's getting remarried now? If so, both the church and the young widow were foolish. There's also a congregational warning. What, What would happen if the church took up the responsibility for a lifelong needs meeting for a young widow? Verse 13, she'll be idle. She'll go house to house, gossiping, busybody, talking about improper things. A young widow will need and should receive the church's immediate care and provision. And in some cases, that might wisely extend for quite a season. But for a church to supply for such a person long term, literally funds Satan's temptation in her life to tear the church apart. She's made to be active and work. She's made to give her life to good and God-honoring things. That's why I said a moment ago, she doesn't want to give her life to sinful stupidity. Finally, there's an eternal warning, verse 15. Do you see this verse? Some have already turned aside to follow Satan. I've really wrestled with this passage. 
I've asked more people, I've alluded to that, to pray for me this week than for any sermon I can remember in recent memory. I always covet your prayers, but this week I felt my need in an unusual way, partly because I see a suffering young lady. I see tears on her face. And Paul's wanting her to know that some in her circumstance have turned aside to follow Satan. You see, what happened is the pain and loss and suffering and sorrow exposed her as a fraud. When life was easy and her husband was around, she appeared to be a Christian. But when things got difficult, her metal was revealed, as I said earlier, to be fool's gold. When the going got tough, she turned aside to follow Satan. I assume this young widow may have been tempted to entertain the flirtation of a lost man or an immoral relationship or something to meet her sense of deeper need for companionship than Christ she thought could offer. So dear ones, hear me. You will all suffer. All of you. Some of you will suffer significantly in this lifetime. You will have sorrows that are more than if you knew they were coming, you could feel you could bear. That's the inescapable reality of living in a fallen world. But Christ is sufficient for you. He's enough for you. In fact, the God of heaven has deployed the entire reservoir of his unlimited resources through your family and through your church family and the fullness of Christ to support and supply your needs until you see him face to face. He will not desert you. He will not forsake you. But be warned, the enemy of your soul would love to present your suffering to you as a valid reason to follow him instead of Christ. Now, after this sermon, I'm going to pray. We'll make our way to the Lord's Supper. And then we'll return to our seats. I want you to hear the gospel as you prepare to go. Perhaps as we're at the supper, the musicians can play and sing. We'll figure that out. But I want you to hear this. I mentioned that Paul gave the biggest chunk of this letter to this issue of caring for widows. More space than anything else he talks about. I've alluded to the fact that many Old Testament passages reveal God's heart for widows and his command for his people to care for them. I've tried to show, like the book of James, New Testament, pure religion in God's sight, inextricably tied to aiding widows in their distress. But I haven't yet said much about what the Lord Jesus had to say about his heart for widows, so I'm going to leave you with that. In Matthew 23, Jesus excoriated the scribes and Pharisees for devouring widows' houses taking from them instead of giving to them. In Mark 12, he drew attention to two little smart, small copper coins, which amount to a cent that a widow had put in the offering. And he said that was more than all the massive dollar amounts that the rich people threw into the coffers. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus drew attention to the widow of Zarephath to whom Elijah was sent in 1 Kings. In Luke 7, Jesus felt compassion for a widow in the city of Nain and told her, do not weep, then proceeded to raise her son from the dead. In Luke 18, Jesus used the illustration of a persistent widow who pled with an unrighteous judge, quote, continually to give her legal protection as an example for how we should approach the throne of grace. In Acts chapter 6, the first deacons who were appointed by the congregation in Jerusalem were appointed because the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And as I prayed at the very beginning, the last assignment Jesus gave, while he was bloody and battered and hanging on a cross, the last ministry assignment he gave was to his beloved disciple John to care for his mom, who was almost certainly a widow. We don't hear anything about Joseph after Jesus was 12 years old. Many conclude that he had died somewhere before, between then and Jesus' beginning of his public ministry. When Jesus then saw his mother hanging on the cross, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. This is so close to the heart of Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is about the death 
of our divine bridegroom. Have you thought about that? Does that make you a widow? No. No. Because when Christ died for his bride, she did not become a widow. In human cases of spousal death, a deceased husband can no longer help his bride. But when our mighty Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven and sat on heaven's throne, he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, who's with us always. We are not widowed. We are not alone. Whether you are six years old or 46 or 86, whether you're single or married or young or old or widowed or widower, divorced or relocated far away from your biological family, God intends for the local church, the body of Christ, to minister to your needs and as an extension of his heart because we are his family. For those among us who are older, some of you I've talked to this week who are looking across the river into glory. I sat and talked to one of these brothers just a moment ago and I told him I wouldn't say it. But I think of these precious ones in our flock. I think of those who've been left destitute by ungodly spouses who broke the marriage covenant and those whose hearts are full of sorrow because of the death of a loved one. I want you to hear something. You and your loved ones will be taken care of. Through your posterity, your kids and grandkids, and through this church family, so help us God. We will honor those among us whom the Lord gives us the privilege to serve and support. I wonder if we don't have an overabundance of this demographic right now because God wanted us first to see and hear his heart and be preparing the soil of our souls so that when he blesses us, with this aged generation, we'll be ready to come alongside to serve and help them. After I pray, you'll be invited to make your ways to the Lord's Supper as Pastor Brian instructed us earlier, and then please return to your seat and he'll come and close our service. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus. One of the very last things you did before you breathed your last breath on the cross was to ensure that a widow would be well taken care of. We do want to know your heart. We do want to know your heart for the vulnerable believers among us. We want to know how this local church can be used by you to extend your love and your care to those among us. Use us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.